Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another Wednesday afternoon and another episode of Action Movie Anatomy. We're here to talk about the kickoff of the most unbelievable decade for a female director, in my opinion, of all time. It's going to be The Hurt Locker. We'll see you guys in just one second. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Action Movie Anatomy. What's up, everybody? Bow, bow, bow. How you guys doing? Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, everybody. It's Action Movie Anatomy here on a Wednesday afternoon, and we're back. We're, we're back, back to chat about... This is an exciting movie to cover. Like, I feel like we're two years later, and when we started the show, we didn't think we'd ever be able to cover a movie like this. No, we were almost positive. I, I think originally if you would have talked about this or anyone would have brought this movie up, I would be like, we would have never covered that on the show. I've said that about Saving Private Ryan. I've said about Lord of the Rings. My, how things change. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is slow, right? Like, I think early on we had talked a little bit about uh, Saving Private Ryan as a movie that was kind of on the edge for us. Because yeah. there's way more action in Saving Private Ryan than there is in this movie. For sure, and I think there's even more action in Saving Private Ryan than, like, most people remember because it's not the action that really sticks with you. Right. Even though the, the opening scene is so powerful, it's just, it's about the relationships and everything else that goes on. Right, absolutely. So, yes, we are covering The Hurt Locker, guys. We are here to chat about it. There's so much to say. Uh, if you didn't realize it, and most of you probably did, this film is directed by a woman, which is not something that we see a whole lot of in uh, modern day Hollywood with big successful films like this. Yeah, and uh, I, I personally believe Catherine Bigelow is the the best director, best female director of all time. Yeah, and that's that's a, I think a lot of people will will agree with you on that. I think there's a bunch of other women out there that um, that we will discuss. We're going to talk about the top five female directors working in Hollywood. Um, but it's interesting because uh, Catherine Bigelow, who used to be married to <clears throat> James Cameron, uh, and they were not married at the time. Yep. Uh, she did not want to take this film. Yeah. And, yep. and James was kind of like, you should, you should really do this. I yeah. think this is a really good idea for you. Yeah. And then she ends up taking all the awards from him at the Oscars that year for Avatar, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, it's hilarious. And it's, yeah. it's just great. I mean, this is a much better film than Avatar, so deservedly and, so. And I love that story, too, because it's one of those things where you know James Cameron doesn't care. No. Like, a lot of people will be like, ah, oh, you know, he doesn't mind. But in the back of their mind, they're like, God, I wanted that Oscar. Right, of course. You know, Cameron really just doesn't give a shit. Yeah, not at all. I love it. Yeah, yeah. he was just like, I'm just going to make five more Avatar movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, guys, uh, it's Action Movie Anatomy. If you want to follow along in the conversation, you can catch up with any one of us. You can find me personally at Ben Bateman Media on Twitter or Instagram. And, of course, we have the podcast on Twitter at AMA Podcast. Uh, you guys can find me at Andrew Guy on Instagram and Twitter. And guys, our Action Movie Anatomy fan page on Facebook is growing exponentially. It's growing rapidly. We're getting very close to our 400th member. So I can't believe, honestly. We were just celebrating 300. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it. It's really exciting. Really exciting to see that growing. So if you guys want to go ahead and follow along there, that's uh, that's a fun thing. And on the couch today, we have the specialist specialist. The specialist <laughs> specialist. Marina Verano. Welcome to the show, Marina. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me again. Um, yeah. If you want to find me on Instagram or Twitter, it's Marina underscore Verano, V-A-R-A-N-O. And, and uh, like they said, please join the fan page. Get your friends, family, cousins, brothers, sisters. I enjoy chatting with all of you every day, so we got some good stuff going on. This is the first time you saw this movie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I liked it. it. Yeah, yeah. I liked it a lot. All right, I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, this is a good one. Uh, so, guys, we should we should point out we do cover action movies on this show that adhere to four basic rules on the Popcorn Talk Network. Rule number one: the hero always plays by their own rules, and and I think it's safe to say that Jeremy Renner is the hero, and I think it is safe to say that he plays by his own rules. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a, I think in a very different way because it's not in a like 
save the day way. It's in a super masochistic way. Yeah, it's in a, and it's in a. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, you said it perfectly. He's he's not. He's a total anti-hero. Yeah, totally. Rule number two: the hero and the villain are always the smartest people, beings, things, whatever in the room. Um, I guess in the context of this movie, he is the smartest guy in the room. In the context of his life, he will die eventually by a bomb. Probably. So the bomb is actually always going to be smarter than him in the huh. long run. There's yeah. no way he'll ever. If he just does what he's doing for, a, you know, you know what he I mean? He just can't do it forever. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I hate to use this example, and, and please don't don't take it negatively, but it's like Steve Irwin. It's like, you play with fire enough, yeah. sometimes fire is going to bite you back or burn you. Absolutely. And it's like, you saw it with Guy Pierce in the beginning of the movie. Yep. You know? Totally. Um, rule number three, the movie is driven by a police, military, or political figure. Uh, and I guess we left out mercenary, but yeah, it's definitely military. The whole film's military. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a woman in this movie at all? There's, uh, oh, there's there just is. Evangeline Lilly. Lilly. Yeah, yeah. But even then, it's it's like it's such an interesting character. Yeah, for just a minute. And rule number four: the movie contains a minimum of one explosion. Definitely great <laughs> explosions bombs. Yeah. in this movie. Um, so, guys, that's pretty much what we do here on the show. We are going to get straight into the show, and the show today will include a conversation of the five best female directors working today. We're going to have a conversation: Is Jeremy Renner overrated, underrated, or properly rated? Uh-huh. And, of course, we're going to talk about what would have happened if Tom Cruise had starred in the film. (laughs) (laughs) Most importantly. importantly. Let's just jump to that. Yeah, Yeah. let's just get straight into it. But uh, in the meantime, let's watch the trailer for the the movie and uh, get straight into the show. I do not remember this trailer. It's an okay trailer. Yeah. Uh, Welcome to Camp Victory. Camp Victory? This was Camp Liberty. Oh, no, they changed that about a a week ago. Victory sound. I love him. Mackie? Sample. Yeah. So what do you got? The car has been parked illegally. The suspension is sagging. There's definitely something heavy in the trunk. Hey, Marina, would you do me a quick favor? Interesting. Would you mind just ducking to the camera and just shutting the door there? So What's he doing? From that. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die comfortable. How many bombs have you disarmed? 873. 873? Yes. You're a wild man, you know that? Thank you. Oh, so bad. First time working together? What do you think? I think us working together means I talk to you and you talk to me. Are you going around Nate Zamborn? My team leader is inspiring. He's going to get me killed. I have an interesting point about uh, the scene we just see here. I think it's... I'll wait until the trailer talking about that. That was good. It's combat, buddy. What do we have here? This box is full of stuff. That almost killed me. What about this one? Where's this one from, Will? It's my wedding ring. Like I said, stuff that almost killed me. She gets, uh, as her career develops, she gets to be more and more and more of an actual, like, dramatic master. What's really interesting about this movie is there are certain moments that are still reminiscent of Point Break. No, like, her history is a little bit more of, like, a throwaway action director. Yeah. Like, the, like the beats, like, things that almost killed me, stuff like that. So we can keep um, the other thing I'm going to mention in a second. They're, like, very clearly things that come from sort of bad, not bad, but, like, predictable 90s action right. Whereas I think Zero Dark gets, gets much darker, and Detroit is certainly nothing like Point Break. Yeah, Detroit's just a straight-up drama, isn't it? Yeah, it's super intense. Roll the dice. And you deal with it. That's a great shot. That's yeah, it's one, one of the, the best shots in the movie, movie for sure. 
movie totally came out of nowhere. And at the time that this came out, it was like, oh, Catherine Bigelow, huh? Like, yeah. This is 17 years after Point Break, which like Point Break was was a an effective action movie at the time, but by no means was like a like an Oscar movie. It was just like a like a stupid action movie that people right. liked a lot. The idea that she was going to direct this intense drama, I think people didn't quite know how to take it. They didn't K- know what to expect, I feel like, too. Yeah, I mean, K-19, The Widowmaker, was 2002. That, it's a good example of, like, that's the level of movie she had most recently made in the war genre. I'm, like, trying to guide my mother into trying to figure out how to watch this episode right now. We've done 110 <laughs> fucking episodes, and she still can't figure it out. I love you, Mom, but come on. Um, love you, Supac. Send her the link. I, she doesn't matter. I've sent her the link. I've sent her 100 links. Yeah. Um, so before we get into thesis statement, guys, a thesis statement is the part of the show where you have a really strong, bold thought about the film. Something, you know, rooted in hyperbole, the greatest this, the only this, the first... And it should never be, you know, soft. It should always be, like, a really strong thought you have. I actually previewed mine a little bit, I think, in the intro to the show. But I want to get into something I was just mentioning over the trailer, which is that you see elements of... You see elements of sort of cheeseball action movies show up in this movie. Yeah. What, I want to know what your other points are, like... Yeah. Okay. Thinking about it, there's a clear, you know, he's going to die guy. Clear. It's, it's, the, it, it's the therapist. It's the, it's the guy who's counseling Eldritch. As soon as he gets in the car oh, with them, oh, oh, you're oh, positive oh. he's dead. Yeah, the guy that the guy that I'm like positive is Mark Anthony, but it's not. That's not <sighs> Mark Anthony. It's not really 100. percent I know. That's I like hilarious. I like went out of my way to like argue with someone the other day. He looks identical to Mark yeah, Anthony. I know. I know. What's his name? <laughs> it's not Mark Anthony. It's oh. something like yeah. It's it's very similar. Uh, I mean, he looks very similar. It's, I'll look it up. But yeah, that drove me crazy. Hmm. It was just like when I thought... Oh, Christian Camargo? Yeah, there you go. Christian Camargo. Just like how I thought Feruza Balk was the other girl in Batman Forever. I think I quizzed you uh, on that. It's and like you were Drew Barrymore and Feruza Balk, and it's not. Didn't we think Mila Kunis was in a movie recently, and it re- definitely Probably. wasn't her? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. We don't, um, we don't know what we're talking about. So, but yeah, I just think that's interesting, right? Like, he's... It's like... It's a plot device that is, like, set up in the way that those... Like, the, you know, he's gonna die guy. It's like yeah. a device. And it's effective in the movie, but you know it's going to happen. I just think it's so interesting. Like, there's elements in this movie where she hadn't quite transitioned into where she is now as a director. Right. And that's going to lead me into my thesis statement. I want to hear it. So, my thesis statement is, and I already, I said earlier, I believe Catherine Bigelow is the greatest female director of all time. But more importantly, uh, The Hurt Locker kicks off the greatest decade by a female director in film history. Yeah, I heard you say that, and I want to know why Why you say that. Well, why, why decade? Because, so, since Hurt Locker, what has she produced? She has, directed I mean, has come up with three films. Uh, the Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, and Detroit. In Detroit Zero right? Dark Thirty, I love that Amazing movie. movie. Love that movie. I have a strong suspicion Detroit's going to get nominated for at least six Oscars. Uh, it won't win, because I don't think that it's a perfect enough movie to beat out some of the quality stuff we've seen come out this year. But it will get nominated for Best Picture. She will once again get nominated for Best Director, which means that three films in a row she's directed will have been nominated for Best Picture, and she will have been nominated for Best Director three times in a row. We're going to talk a little bit later about the female directors in question here. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, because of the way the Hollywood system has worked historically, and it's getting better, but historically there's, there haven't been opportunities for female directors to make the kind of impact movies we're talking about. Yeah, and, and it is always – it's like the the Jordan argument, the Kobe argument, the LeBron argument. She is the greatest because she's had the most nominations, and, and she's the first ever to win. Yeah. And and, and win best picture, best, best picture as a female director as well. But even beyond that, I think what's so interesting about this is that this 
the Hurt Locker really marks the rebirth of Catherine Bigelow as a director. Totally, because Be- I when this movie came out, I didn't know who she was. The first part of her career is distinctly different. Yeah. The most notable two movies in the first half of her career are Point Break and Near Dark. Oh, I thought you were going to say K-19. No. Damn it. And then you throw in you throw in a bunch of like sort of weird movies like... Um, she is not Blue Thunder, Blue something from like 1990 with Jamie Blue Lee Crush? Curtis. No, uh, <laughs> it's a movie from 1990 with Jamie Lee Curtis that's like a like some sort of drama thriller. But you throw that in, you throw in Strange Days, K-19 The Widowmaker. I think she did a movie called The Weight of Water in 2000. She has like this very weird career where before, prior to this phase, she would just be considered sort of like the oddity. The female director working in action, which is not something that you see very often. Now it's totally different. Now it's you can distinctly divide Catherine Bigelow's career into two halves. And the last decade is far and away the most impressive run by a female in the history of film. There's there's not even anybody really in the same conversation. Right. We'll get into it later. But it's there are there are definitely directors that have done great things within their genre, and you could make arguments that some of those people have really impressive decades, but to me, maybe it's the subject matter that gets the nominations, but nonetheless, it's just the masterwork from those three films. And I saw Detroit. I recommend you guys see it. It's very and, good. It, and it feels like for her, 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 her path is only going like, it's not even like slightly going up. It's just straight up. And you can tell by the movies that she's picking and the, and the subject matter. It's also crazy that like the two big movies that, that kind of put her back on the map are like direct war movies in the yeah, Middle East. Totally. And they're really dark. All they're written by very the same different. dude. Yeah. Um, all right. So my thesis statement is it's really interesting because – our, our boy Richard, Eric Jarvey, made this really long post today uh, on our Facebook page. And it really made me think, because my thesis is that the story with Beckham is the most irrelevant part of this movie. It's it's a nod to bad, cliche directing. And, and I think it's the worst thing in this film. I think it makes it 20 minutes too long. I think it doesn't make any sense to attach to it. I think you've got I didn't an, get the relevance either, now that you say that. Totally. And I think you've got enough going on with, with Eldridge and Sanborn and, like... Right after uh, Eldridge almost dies, you have that moment of Renner going and taking a shower with his clothes on, and he kind of—it's the first time you kind of see him shaken. And, yeah. I, and I don't even really know why it is, because I don't think it's because he feels bad about almost killing, getting his partner killed. I don't think that's anything to do with it. I think it was just one of those things, like, damn, that was a good game. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Totally. Like that was insane. So, but. I'm going to try to paraphrase this. He says, I can't narrow this down to a single question, but I'm fascinated about what you think about the DVD kid, uh, the DVD selling kid Beckham. What do you think is the importance of him? Do you think he actually died? Was it actually him that was a bomb? Do you think that James is suffering from PTSD? Do you think it's a figment of his imagination? Um, and I think that's really interesting. I think that if you want to like try to fight for that being a figment of his imagination, like you're definitely giving more credit than credit is due. I think so too. Um, but that's not a bad thing. Like, if you can hold on to that and really convince yourself that they knew about that, but they didn't want to throw it into the film because they didn't want to have to explain it, then I think that's a really cool idea. I think that's the only way that you can put that in the story um, and make it help the film. But even then, it doesn't help because you don't ever acknowledge that that's what it is. It's just like, why do I care? Why do I care about this kid? Okay, he's like, it's like a fun little moment of comedy. And, you know, um, it almost was like a distraction, kind of. Yeah, it's like to pull you away from it, but then you're like, distracted from what? And then, you know, so then the the kid, and then he digs the the really gnarly scene of him digging that bomb out of the kid's stomach. Yeah. And then you just see him the next day, and you kind of feel cheated. Right. As an audience member, you kind of like, it's like the Walking Dead effect. Where it was like Glenn died three times before they killed him. You know what I'm? Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! <laughs> um, and like, 
I, I don't like that shit yeah, in right. movies. I don't like, like, especially in a movie that's this good. Best picture, best director, like, yeah. nominated for best actor. Like, these things. So, um, I think that the, the, the my point is, the thesis is, is that the most irrelevant part of this film, the only way to make this excellent film great or perfect is to take out that storyline or give it a little more to stand on. Well, I think... And I want to know, uh, so specifically, what is your thesis? Specifically, my thesis is that the storyline with the DVD-selling kid, Beckham, is completely irrelevant, and this film suffers because of it. And it would be better without it entirely. So what I was saying to you the other day when we talked about this was that I think sometimes you see, like, okay, um, I talk about this a lot, but... Sam Mendes is a director who recently I was sort of revisiting his movies and just taking it all in again. American Beauty, Road to Perdition, some of that stuff. When you watch a Sam Mendes movie, every part of it feels very intentional. It all, yeah. it, it's everything from the music to the cinematography. And this is back to his first movie. Like, it feels all like this sort of flowing, perfect thing. When you watch movies from directors who are maybe like getting their feet a little more or like a little newer, uh-huh. you often have that that moment where there's something that's supposed to hit a little harder than it does, and it ultimately just feels like kind of a like a weak part of the story. Um, it's something that you notice in in good movies, bad movies. It happens all the time. It's just like some element, like an extra plot line that was thrown in. Even even great directors, like the the Two Face storyline of The Dark Knight, is a good example of something that's kind of like that, where yeah. it's like it doesn't really hit the way it's supposed to. It kind of feels like it's over long. In Heat, the Wayne Gross story, it's like, fine, it doesn't really necessarily need to be there. Totally. The same thing I kind of feel about the Beckham story, which is like, it does take away from the movie. It makes the movie feel a little bit less intentional. It makes it feel more Hollywood, right? It or just like makes it mo- feel... It makes it feel like more of a movie? It, not even, like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's a cop-out as much as it's just like, you're just adding one more thing in that went, like, before you could take the helicopter view and really look at the way this was all going to feel... This felt at one time to you like a very important part of the story. But if you could have gotten a little bit of distance from the project, you probably would have realized it just didn't need to be there. It just made this, it just made it longer than it needed to be. It just added something that didn't need. And it's weird to talk about a movie that won Best Picture that way because, like. Totally. But that, I mean, that, that happens. Who are, who are we to really say they made a mistake when the movie won fucking Best Picture? But. Totally. Yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with you. Marina, do you have any uh, profound thoughts on this one? Um, my thesis, which Richard, yes, good minds think alike. Um, sorry about my voice. Bear with me. But I think this was the best intro to a war movie. The first seven minutes were yeah. just so captivating. And especially with, like, um, Sanborn, like, the part where the guy's like, you're from California? You're from California? This ain't no meet and greet. Like, yeah, it was right. just the perfect amount of comedy. Like, capt- it was very captivating. Because, like, when you're at the movies in the intro scene, like, you're still getting comfortable in your seat, whatever. When I watched right. this, I was like just glued like i was glued in the first i mean the whole movie was very good but those eight it was like seven or eight minutes that the intro was i went back and rewatched it and it was just perfect you see like the little robot thing driving around you're just right. like you don't know what's going on but then you understand why everything was there for a reason and then it goes right into it and i, I really like that and a lot of people agreed that it was because like saving private ryan dunkirk obviously they all started out very well um but this one was just, there was something about it that I was, I kept watching it's it. It's great, yeah. I mean, I think it's the one you just mentioned, the toughest comparison is SPR. Cause, yeah, because the, the Normandy scene. But was... we've both agreed that I think the beginning of that movie actually suffers because of the bookends on that movie, the unnecessary stuff of the gravesite, which I think actually is totally. a slower intro to the movie than people realize there's actually like two to three minutes of that movie that don't immediately gra- grab you. Whereas this one, I think it actually does a, a, little, a little bit more so right from the first frame. The Rock being the other greatest intro of all time. 
Yeah, I, <laughs> I miss you so much. I really do think they could have just cut the both those bookends on on SPR if yeah, you just start it and end. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. My other thesis was that this is the greatest use of top build guest stars or co-stars or like cameos ever. Yeah. Because Guy Pierce, David Morse, and Ray Fiennes are all more famous than anyone else in this movie at this yeah, time. And they're all like and tiny they're, characters. They're all in it they less than ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. And there is such powerful moments. Yeah. Like um yeah, we'll, we'll get into them because we're going to talk about them. So let's, let's move on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, guys, we're going to move on to the next portion of the show, and that is going to be fist pump moment. This is that moment in the movie something happens. You look around you're like, are you seeing this right now? This is so good. I can't believe I can watch the rest of this movie. I love it. Like something happens in the movie, and you just get like that overwhelming like joy, like that euphoria in yeah. you. And I know exactly when it is for both of us in this. And you're watching. You're just like, yes, this is great. Uh, I think it's hard for it not to be the moment we're both thinking of because okay. it's such a bizarre and like... It's. I think it's actually one of the most effective moments dramatically in the whole movie. I think it's the most effective moment in the whole movie, period. It's such a weird moment. Like, I think thinking about her deciding to shoot that and, like, what it and would like sort of mean And, like, picking him to do it. Yeah. Like, and then... Um, so you can go ahead and leave with it. Yeah, so the scene we're talking about is it's right after that really intense uh, diffusal where, where uh, Renner takes off his headphones and takes off all of his yeah. gear. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what is this guy doing? You yeah. know, Mackie's pissed off. And so David Morris comes up to him and he's like... He says to Eldritch first. Yeah. You, James? You the guy that diffused the bombs? <laughs> no, no, it's him over there. James, so. someone looking for you. Wow. Yeah, so he walks up to him. And what is the first thing he says? Is how many... He says he, he goes he goes James and he's just like oh, oh shit because he realizes it's, it's like a, a general yeah, yeah. yeah right and he's like he's like is you 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 defuse those bombs and he's like yes and he's like ah, hot shit hot shit hot shit wild man wild man <laughs> how many bombs you defused eight hundred and seventy no 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 he goes I, I don't know sir he goes soldier I ask you a question eight hundred and seventy three eight hundred and seventy three God it's got to be some kind of record hot shit wild man <laughs> what's what's the best way you go about defusing these bombs. Yeah. Well, you don't die, sir. <laughs> Spoken like a true wild man. Well, you don't die. Like, he is so awesome. He makes Jeremy Renner, it's like the coolest guy that you've ever met. It's like yeah. the coolest man in the world being like, this guy's cooler than me. Right. <laughs> I almost like don't even, because like, the moment you see him right before that, Eldritch is like working on this guy and he's like, uh, we could still take him back to the base. He's like, he's not going to make it. And he's like, uh, 20 minutes to yeah. base or we could, he's like, he's, he's not, not going to make it. He's like, kind of just like, he seems like your classic war-hardened piece of shit yep like commander and like it's such a cool choice to make david morris play that guy and just he has so little screen time but it's such a great moment in the movie it defines what the movie's about it's like yeah it's the hero it's like the hero qualifier that we always talk about in films even though it's done in such a different way yeah it's like exactly that it's like this guy's telling you how awesome this guy is this guy's been around for a long time well yet again guys another thing that Catherine bigelow is obsessed with and this goes back to her days directing point break they describe the characters in Point Break as adrenaline junkies. That's what that movie's about. And yes, it's a cheese ball action yeah. movie, but he's an adrenaline junkie and in the exactly war. That's exactly what this movie's that's about. That's what this movie's yeah. about. The whole entire movie is this like it's like this collage of the most like glaring machismo characters you've ever met. Yep. That's all he is. He's like they're all just like these dudes trying to assert who's got the bigger dick. And then it's but he's the most willing to die, so he's always gonna have he's the biggest always, dick. Yeah, and then it's so <laughs> crazy when he goes back. I, and that's I think enough actually, you know what, I take that back. I think that maybe the greatest dramatic moment is actually them in the store. When he's looking at the cereal. Yeah, yeah because yeah. there's something that just feels 
look, I've never been to war. I've never been to the services, and I appreciate everyone that has spent their time and done that for our country. Um, so I have no idea what it feels like to be in battle or in combat or in even just the camp. Right. But for some reason, you're sitting there and you're watching this movie, and you're like, yeah, I feel comfortable here. Right. Like, for some reason, because Renner is so comfortable, you feel comfortable as an audience member. Right. You're like, I could probably go to war. I'd be all right. Sure. Just the die. way he carries <laughs> himself. Just the way he carries himself. Yeah. And then you go to the store and the way it's shot with the lighting and the silence and then the way he even talks to his wife, you think it's the first time they've met. Right. Really quickly. You think maybe he's picking her up. Right. But then you realize it's, no, 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 they're picking up cereal for their kid. It's just the, the discomfort of that scene is is incredible. Which ultimately, I think, is the reason this movie won Best Picture. It's, it's a lot of the scenes we're talking about. Um, you know... You think about war as a general topic for film, and you think about the movies that have done well. And I'm I'm going all the way back to like 1929, All Quiet on the Western Front. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like that's that's some old old shit. Like we're talking like pre World War II movie making. And you go back as far as you can go. War will always be a topic that's interesting to Americans to watch because yeah. we've been in a bunch of them, and a lot of people have actually been in the service. But the the emotional strain that goes up on someone when they have to go to war is like not something most of us have experienced. So getting to watch it in a film, it's immersing yourself in like the, the realest kind of drama. It's not like being a contract killer where you're going to meet one in your life. It's like, you probably know a couple people who have been in the service. Right. And I think most people, most people out there, I'd say 95% of the audience will identify with Eldridge and Sanborn. Yep. And 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 then the other 5%, like everyone secretly like wants to be Renner. Yeah. But we all identify with the other two. What are you of doing course. taking your headset off? What are you doing? You don't know who to shoot. You don't know what to do. You could you you could have shot that guy. He would be alive, yep. but you didn't, and now Guy Pierce is dead. Like things like that. Mm-hmm. And so, what's so interesting about this film is you get to watch move. You get to watch a war through eyes of someone you never get to see. You never get to see that point of view before. Right. Every other time you watch war, it's through what we all expect. It's like terror, not knowing what you're doing, wanting to go home. Right. So I think I think that's what's so interesting about this film that makes it not really feel like a war movie. Right. It makes it feel like more of like a. I don't know. Like a character-driven like action drama. Yeah, totally. And what I was gonna say is like when we think about this movie winning Best Picture, the approach to showing war in film changes generationally. And these movies, some age really well and others don't, because ultimately the further away you get from that war, the less relatable the subject matter is to someone. Which is why I think as a decade passes, it's sort of more acceptable to go make another one of these. And occasionally you'll get something like Dunkirk, where it's retreading an old an old story from a long time ago. But, you know, I mean, if you think about, like, over the years, films that have done really well, All Quiet's an example, you know, Patton mm-hmm. in 1970 wins Best Picture, yeah. you have Platoon wins Best Picture in 86, you jump all the way into the 90s, it's like Saving Private Ryan in 98 should have won, everybody knows that, but it didn't. The English Patient won in 1996, like, yeah. that's a war film. Yeah, and, I mean, we're, we're obsessed with war. Yeah. We always will be. I think, like, to just bounce off what you were saying, it's almost like you resonate with the characters while the war is going on around them rather than focusing on the war. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's a like character-driven, like you said. You deal with them while the war is going on. Yeah, obviously that doesn't take away from it. You're still, it's a war movie, and you're yeah. not going to forget that. But whereas in other war movies, it's like that's the main focus, and the characters kind of add to it. It was like the reverse effect in this movie. Yeah, I think Saving Private Ryan has the perfect balance of the two of that. And yeah. then Dunkirk and Hurt Locker on the two opposite right, ends. Right, right. Well, I think also like the details that you choose to show when you tell one of these movies that's outside of combat are the ones that ultimately are the most memorable to people. So the, the supermarket is, I think, the sort of moment in this movie that gets it the win. Because yeah. it's, that's, the unique, that's the unique point of view from this war that she decided to show and exhibit. 
it's not something you see as often. I mean, American Sniper was like the most profitable January release of all time. Like people in our country love war movies. Yeah, and this movie didn't make any money. We're going to get into that soon. Yeah. Um, so moving on into star profiles. Uh, super interesting because these guys were basically nobodies when this movie came out. I would call them elevated they were nobodies. Elevated, <laughs> elevated nobodies. Yeah. Like I'd seen Renner before um, and I was a fan of his. I don't, I don't remember what I saw him in that made me a fan of his, but I remember seeing Hurt Locker, uh, the trailer, and I was like, oh, He's oh, in it. I didn't recognize him. Like, I saw him, him. before. <laughs> yeah, I, I like, yeah, so Jeremy Renner had done uh, 28 Weeks Later in 2007, Take in 2007, and then The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford in 2007, and that he has a pretty uh, substantial role in. Yeah, The Assassination of Jesse James was the recent movie when this movie came out, and all the critics were talking about it that people were referencing as, like, most recently he had a standout role in kind of a thing, but it wasn't, like... You know, Brad Pitt stars in that movie, and Casey Affleck is the other star in that movie. Uh-huh. Renner's a small character. He's a cowboy in that movie. He's not, like, impressive in the way that he's impressive. The, the mo- Like, if you look at Renner's career, what it basically breaks down to is he got his dramatic break, his real standout dramatic break at age 30. That's, that's when he did his movie that people saw, and that was called Dahmer. And it's the oh, Jeffrey Dahmer right. story. Dahmer. But that's, that's where I saw him. But it's the same kind of thing yeah. as, as Tom Hardy and Bronson, where it's like, no one really saw that movie. People went and watched it later, but nobody saw that movie. Catherine Bigelow, on the other hand, did see that movie, which was why she cast Jeremy Renner in this movie. Yeah. But around the same time, in 2002, family friends of mine, Mark Stratton and Lois... What is Lois's last name? I haven't seen him in a little while. They directed a movie called uh, Monkey Love. And it stars Jeremy Renner. He's one of the four leads in this movie. And I went to a Seattle screening of this movie in 2002. And at the time, he was basically a nobody. Like, like actually a nobody. Yeah. He had been on television a few times. But I know that between those movies and this movie, he was uh, buying homes, flipping houses, living in them, and remodeling the houses. Yeah, and I've seen that in his, in his uh, commercial. Yeah. The, for whatever liquor that is. It's like he, he likes to remodel houses, he's got a band, and he's an actor. Yeah. He's like, he was the most like laid back, I'll just keep doing the work and being in stuff, but like, he wasn't a millionaire because he hadn't been in anything yet. Yeah. And this movie came along, and she cast him in this movie because she had seen... She had seen the three of them, specifically, I think she listed, uh, she had seen... The guy who plays Eldritch in Jarhead. Yep. She had seen Anthony Mackie in... Uh, it was like a... What am I forgetting? It wasn't We Are Marshall. It was... Um, I don't have it in front of me, but she had I seen know, Anthony Mackie in something else. I might have even written it down in here. And then finally she had seen... Renner and Dahmer. Yeah, and that's, that's, where, that's where the casting for this film came from. So definitely, you know, Jeremy Renner's career after this film completely took off. And we're going to talk about, is Jeremy Renner properly rated in our minds in just a minute? But let's chat Anthony Mackie a little bit first. Hi, Mom. She finally got in. Hi, Supac. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so hopping over to Anthony Mackie, who is... Is Anthony Mackie more famous than Jeremy Renner now, or is it... Is Jeremy Renner more famous than Anthony Mackie? Renner's more famous than Mackie. You would think so, right? Even though Mackie kind of seems to have more of a public draw to him. No. I mean, Renner's in the Mission Impossible franchise. He's in the Marvel franchise. Totally. Like, but, like, how many people talk about Jeremy Renner, whereas, like, Anthony Mackie, I feel like, is, like, a, a presence. You know what I mean? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I guess you're right. Hawkeye, in the, in the context of that franchise, is a smaller character. Cause and even Falcon is smaller, but, like... He yeah, was like it's in, just interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, I would put Renner ahead of him slightly, but I don't think they're it too far off. can go either way, maybe. Yeah. yeah. All right, so Anthony Mackie's three most recent hits back in 2006 and seven were Crossover in 2006, We Are Marshall in 2006, and Ascension Day. Um, I've seen We Are Marshall. Me too. I haven't seen the other two. I haven't seen the other two. Uh, 
he was just up and coming. He's super young at this point. I love We Are Marshall. Um, yeah, sweet. <laughs> he, had, he had had his breakout role in Eight Mile in 2002. Yeah. And he had a small was that role. It? No, that wasn't it. What was the movie that we're trying to think of? No, I, it's Million Dollar Baby in 2004. That's That was it. That yeah. Anthony Mackie was in that she saw him in? I don't know if she saw him in that. but I mean, no, those I'm are, talking about the thing that you and I were just talking about. That where she saw she, him in? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to figure it out. That I'm not sure. Um, but de- definitely the two big credits were, you know, he <clears> plays, um, what the hell is the character's name? That he that Eminem has to beat at the shelter at the end. Oh. Um, he's like the he's like the main oh, villain. He's, the rapper. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. can't think of the character's name. Oh is. my god. What? Lotto. 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 No, I feel like he has like a. I don't he, know. Marissa what, sounded pretty. What's confident. his rap name though? It's it. it's, it's something we'd Lotto. know. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I just I interviewed half Anthony Nelson. Ma- that's yeah, what that's it was. The one. Half Nelson with with uh, Gosling. I interviewed Anthony Mackie like three weeks ago, and I made reference to the character's name. I just can't think what the character's name is. And it's. He right, has so some... while you think about that, all right, I'm gonna Ben's intro gonna this... get stressed out. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna intro this conversation. What? Papa Doc. Papa Doc. Oh, Papa there we Doc. Go. Yeah, he loved that you called him that. Yeah, I bet. I told him I was like, my dad and I saw Eight Mile in 2002 at the Neptune Theater in Seattle. I can't wait to tell him the story. <laughs> Papa Doc. Uh, so, guys, this was brought up online, and and I love that the fans are talking about this over under properly rated for Jeremy Renner. Um, it's an interesting. One. It's a very interesting conversation because he's a guy that isn't really ever in the limelight solely. Yep, he was in this film, but since then he hasn't really been. Um, Jeremy Renner is interesting. I, I'm going to hop in first because I love Jeremy Renner. I have a huge, huge man crush on Jeremy Renner. I think he's properly rated though, and the reason that I say this is because. Um, I don't know if he has the movie star charisma that we talk about. Like, I, I definitely think he does because he's so good at Mission Impossible and he's so good in this. But, like, I'm not dying to watch Jeremy Renner as the lead in a movie. Whereas, I, now I've heard Wind River's fantastic. I can't wait to see it. And I can't wait to watch it. But that being said is that Jeremy Renner does get opportunities to still show us in Wind River to where Ben and I are, like, dying to watch it. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm hoping it's going to be great. And I'm hoping that he keeps doing this. So my point is, is that he's doing all the things that I want him to be doing. Right. He's making good indie films. He's in the Marvel movies, but he's not letting it take over his career. He's not a douchebag. He picks great films that um, <clears throat> that he can do when he has time that aren't like massive blockbusters. And like, look, the town, he was the best part in the town, you know, and he's the best part in this movie. Like, I just love the guy. I think he's underrated. I totally get it. I think he's underrated, and the reason I say that is because here was what I realized. I was gonna I was gonna call him properly rated because mm-hmm. in my mind I was gonna be like, okay, you know, he had the thing happen to him where he starred in the big movie, the big Oscar movie. He's gotten one years. Oscar nod, right? He or he you, get, did he get one for he didn't get one for Dahmer. He definitely got one for the town. That's oh, where he got the support, and he got one for this, didn't he? I thought he got one for this. I think he has yeah, two so he's noms got two. and his back to back years. Um, so what I think is interesting about Jeremy Renner is yeah. he comes along too. Mm-hmm. So he comes along and he has the big Oscar moment, right? Where he's in this movie and everybody's like, oh, this Jeremy Renner guy came out of nowhere, right? So the next few years of his career, in my mind, were like, that's where he really made his money, right? That was where I first thought. I was like, he's got the town role, which is like, you know, built for this guy because it's the year after, right? It's perfect for him, mm-hmm. right? And then yeah, I figure, okay, he shows up in a couple other things. He's in the next Mission Impossible movie. That's another classic career step. Cruz is like, oh, I'll take the leading man Oscar out to be kind of my sidekick in this movie. And then I was like, wait a minute, he starred in Arrival last year. And that oh, was, like, one of the yeah. best movies of the year. And then I was like, and I guess he's been in the Marvel franchise this whole time. And I was like, oh, yeah, and he has that role in American Hustle, too. Yep. That was nominated for Best Picture. And I was like, 
Jesus, this guy's been working and just like he's phenomenal. Great movie after great movie after great movie. I think he's underrated. I think people don't realize that Jeremy Renner quietly has had one of the most impressive careers in the last decade of any of any lead actor who's not really oh, a lead actor. Absolutely. Like I would I would kill for that career. Everyone in Boston says he made the town. Yeah, which oh, I think absolutely. is hundred percent. Being the, from yeah. Boston and seeing that movie all the all the time. It's it's true. <laughs> Blake Lively's accent made that movie. Yeah, exactly. Richard, <laughs> yeah. Richard Drive. Whose car are we taking? Yeah. So good. Uh, um, so, Marina, do you have any thoughts on that? Or do you, how do you feel? Where, where do you uh, put Jeremy Renner at? I don't know. I, I get what you're saying by, like, he really is never given the limelight. Mm-hmm. But then again, like, you when you say Jeremy Renner, it's not like who? Like, you do know who he is. Yeah. So, it, I don't know. It, it could – I don't know. I feel like he's a little underrated. But then again, he's not overrated. So, I think it's, like, yeah. under – it's in between under and proper. I can see both where you're both coming from. I, I see that. I totally forgot he was in Arrival. Right, me too. That's yeah. why I was looking at this morning. I was like, oh, this guy's, like, t- killing it. So, here, here's the real question. The, he's so the phrase On paper, he's yeah. – you know exactly. what I mean? So, the phrase A-list we that use sometimes. so good. Uh, Arrival. Yes, yeah, so yeah. We use the phrase A-list to refer to people like George Clooney and like the sort of like the top of the top of the top, these icons. These and we're people, not talking just about the movies they're in. It's about a presence they have socially as well. It's about a level. Yeah. So I used to argue with, I mean, when we started this show, this is how crazy this is. When we started this show, you used to tell me that you thought Ryan Gosling was on the fringe. He was. You, you were like, I think he's, you know, quietly A-list. Right. And he's so clearly, ago. he's so yeah, he clearly now. A-list now. Yeah. But, like, that's kind of the thing where you're the guy who's headlining Best Picture nominee. You're like, and you're the guy. Like, yeah. you can lead Blade Runner 2049 next to Harrison Ford. That's the guy you are. Yeah, because a couple of years ago when we talked about Gosling, it was like the movies that we were talking about were like Half Nelson and, and yeah. Million, or I mean, Blue Valentine. He was like, he had, had, he had been in some big stuff. So the question is, on paper, Marina, as you said, Jeremy Renner's clearly A-list. In the context of, like, if you could pick 20 guys and girls in Hollywood, if you mm-hmm. could pick, like, the top 20, he's definitely not top not even, 20. Anywhere right. near it. He's probably not which even top why, 50. Which is why I, I think Anthony Mackie is even, he could even be in there just because he has so, he's just younger and he's got a bigger presence. I'd call them both People top talk 100, about and I'll bet sure. you they're both, I'll bet you they're like both, the 60s. like, right outside the top 50. Yeah, totally. And they're, like, next to each other on the list. 100%. It's like Terrell Pryor and Antonio and, and, and uh, Martavis Bryant in this year's fantasy drafts. Yeah, we'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> we don't talk football in here, Ben. You're going to keep Isaiah Crowell. I know it. Oh, of course I'm for Isaiah 11, Crowell. He's insane. For $11. Uh, uh, anyway, guess. Yeah. <laughs> Fantasy football. Uh, just to answer a quick question, we will be playing deep cuts on the 22nd in the Schmodown. Yes. We're coming for you. Yes, we will. Uh, so let's get into production development, guys. Uh, we've talked a good amount about Catherine Bigelow, but there's a few things here that I wanted to mention from the trivia that we thought were super interesting. We already mentioned the James Cameron part, but originally they were going to cast... Colin Farrell, Willem Dafoe, and Charlize Theron. And the, just, you know what the funniest part about that is? By today's standards, Charlize Theron's clearly the most famous of those three. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Charlize Theron's clearly the most famous out of everyone we've talked about today. Yeah. Um, she's, Sorry, she, Jeremy. She, she, yeah. she exactly. is a, a good example of somebody who's legitimately top 20 A-list. Oh, absolutely. For like, sure. The woman walks in any room, anywhere, and everyone goes, holy shit, that's Charlize she's Theron. She's definitely, yeah. for women... She's top I think ten. She's, top I think five. she's like, for women. I think she's number one. I right think now. she's number one right now. Right now, like used to be Jolie, used to be Kidman, used to be like you know what I mean. Like she's, it's changed. It's her moment right and now. Get, it, might, it might be gals in ten years. We'll see. Gals probably not far behind. Just no, because she's of not just because success. of Wonder Woman. But yeah. I'm saying you know Charlize yeah. just put in the time. Totally. Um, so this is really interesting that I saw. Uh, Catherine Bigelow claims that no scene filmed was left out of the final cut. 
that's like a Nolan move right there. But even Nolan has scenes he cuts. Well, so you heard the thing about the the sheer number of cameras used to film this movie. Yeah. So it's a, she she has an approach of filmmaking called three sixty filming, where you have cameras from all sides. You don't know which one you're playing to. Um, and they were telling me about this a little bit at the Detroit junket, like just like that sort of. She puts you right in the thick of it. And the reason she's so good at making war films is because that's the feeling you have in a war environment, is that you you don't feel like you have a safe side necessarily if you're in combat. You're kind of being assaulted from all sides at all times. Right. And that's kind of the approach. That's why she uses so many cameras. And so there's a lot of shaky cam, very like... Her films have a feeling in some ways of almost like it's like a documentary. Yeah, and I like that the shaky cam... There's a way to do it. Watch this movie. You know what I mean? Like, there's <laughs> yeah. a way to do it without making you nauseous or distract you from the film. Totally. Um, so, yeah, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the people involved in this film. So let's start with Mark Bull. Um, this is this is pretty pretty interesting. I asked you this morning, have you seen In the Valley of Allah? And I told you, I think I'd seen it once, and it was when I was working at Blockbuster. Yeah. But I don't remember anything about it. So I never saw this movie. That's I'm... Charlize in TLJ, correct? Correct. Yeah. That's Tommy Lee Jones, shorthand. <laughs> it's an industry thing. Um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, gonna to go home and watch In the Valley of Allah tonight, I think. Um, is it supposed to be good? Well, yeah, it's supposed to be very good. It was Tommy Lee Jones was nominated for Best Actor for it. It's written by Mark Bull. It's his first credit. And it's directed by Paul Haggis. It's the follow-up to Crash. Like that movie completely missed me on every level. Yeah, I, that see that's I think that's why I watched it was because of exactly what you said. It was like the hero qualifier. Someone was telling me about it, and I was like, "Really? He's like all a, of these things? He's like a military ex ex investigator who's trying to investigate the disappearance of his son after Iraq." Like, I was just like reading about it. I was like, "This movie sounds awesome." Right. So that's Mark Bull. Uh, he has he's a writer who's been published in the Village Voice, Salon, Rolling Stone, Playboy. He's one of these journalists who writes like those Vanity Fair articles to get turned into movies, kind of a thing. Right. And he's yeah. that guy because interestingly enough, uh, his first article was adapted and turned into In the Valley of Allah, and then subsequently he wrote articles in uh, Playboy and Rolling Stone that were adapted into The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark 30. and Zero Dark Thirty. Um, that's who he is. He's the guy that does that, and then his articles, he goes and he either adapts his own article and writes the screenplay. How does your article from Playboy turn into Zero Dark Thirty? Turn into Zero Dark Thirty or The Hurt Locker? I mean, you, you he, he spent time in 2004 embedded with a with a bomb um, with a uh, what's the bomb squad, and that's where all the information for this from this film came from. That's crazy. They always make that joke. It's like, no, I, I get I get Playboy for the articles. Yeah. I, go, I go to Hooters for the wings. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like I yeah. This is... <laughs> <laughs> I wrote an article for Playboy, and it's uh, the Hurt Locker. Yeah, what? Like, what? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy to me. So that's this guy and Mark Bull. You know, we always talk about. You said it's like Phil Jackson, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan. Well, is Catherine Bigelow what made Mark Bull Mark Bull? Or did Mark Bull make Catherine Bigelow the second half of her career what it is? Because he's written all three of the films right. I talk about. Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, and Detroit. They're all Mark Bull scripts. Um, on the other hand, In the Valley of the Law completely fell flat for most people, and nobody saw that movie, and he wrote that movie. So, Maybe it's just like boring subject matter or yeah, something. Yeah, I don't know. I also think it's a poorly named movie. Yeah, it is a very poorly named movie. That's such a great combination. I think it's a great duo. Yeah. It's an awesome duo. So that's Mark Bull. He also functions as a producer with Catherine Bigelow on the film. They've yeah. done the three together. Uh, their first collaboration was this film, and it's based on his experience in that bomb squad. He actually was sued by a... Uh... Yeah, you read this. Yeah. Yeah, the guy that basically this the character of Jeremy Renner is loosely based on uh, sued him for a lot of money and claimed that he coined the term Hurt Locker, and in court they were like, 
uh, nope, the term Hurt Locker has existed for like 50 years, yep. and also you're making a bunch of outlandish claims, and the guy ended up being uh, instructed to pay $180,000 in lawyer fees, and they threw the whole case out completely. Well, of course, because the Hurt Locker they were talking about it originated in the Vietnam War, right? Yep. Is yep. that what it was? And it was basically just it's what it sounds like. It's a place you don't want to be in. No. <laughs> so Bigelow, I talked a little bit about this already, but... Uh, she originally, in the mid-80s, she directed the Western vampire film Near Dark, which is a Bill Paxton film. It's actually very good. It's super low budge. It's one of those movies that a lot of people, like like movie nerds, love this movie. Yeah. Um, I think it's one of her five best. Point Break in 1991. You think it's one. You'd love it. It's one of her five best. Okay. Her top five movies are those two and these three. Yeah. Um, which is a pretty impressive top five, and I think one of the reasons. I tweeted this the other day, but uh, Catherine Bigelow, in my opinion, is one of the 25 greatest directors of all time. I, like... I thought about it pretty, and not like when you guys hear that, that's not like a loose term. Start thinking about the people you would put into that conversation. You, you if you start up at the top, and you're going to put the Camerons and the Spielbergs, and you're going to put Scorsese's and the Nolans, yeah. and if you want to put Coppola Kubrick's. and Kubrick, like you really talk about the greatest, the cream of the crop. You're going to knock 15 of those slots off the list before you even start considering people. Totally. And then you start to get into people like like Paul Thomas Anderson and Danny Boyle and like David Fincher. Yep. And I think that her her filmography is impactful enough. I wouldn't be surprised if she jumped some of my favorite male directors. Like I wouldn't be surprised if in the grand scheme of ranking I put her ahead of PT on the all-time list. Totally. And there's wow, that's big. Um I'm not saying it, but I'm just thinking like I wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me really. Well, there's a the thing about I'm so curious. Like, I wish this was like a festival or something where it was like five directors get this story and they all make the same movie. Totally. Because I know, and we're we're getting into discussion very soon as the top five female working directors. I know that Wonder Woman would have not been good if Patty Jenkins didn't direct it. Right. You know, it needed a woman's touch. It's it, why it, Atomic it, Blonde kind of sucked. Exactly. It's why Atomic. <laughs> that's exactly what Atomic Blonde was missing. So you wonder. In Catherine Bigelow's directing, in the films that she picks, in the subject matter that she directs, it's like, Jesus, that's with a woman's touch. And I'm not necessarily saying that that makes it lighter or, or, or softer or anything, but that's with a woman's touch. And these are already, like, such intense things. You wonder what it would have been like with a man. You wonder if it would have even been watchable. You wonder if it would have been, like, a Michael Bay film at that point. Well, so, again, going back to that conversation with Anthony Mackie that I was referencing, one of the questions that I asked him, what the question I started with was... Um, do you think that Catherine Bigelow, as a minority in Hollywood, of basically an Oscar-winning female director, was the perfect person to direct Detroit because of her role as a minority in the industry? And he just looked at me straight up and he just said, I think she was perfect to direct the film because of her talent. Yeah. I think if you can do it, you can do it. And yeah. you would never believe when you meet this woman that this gentle, beautiful woman has the ability to make these kind of movies but she does, and I trust her every step of the way. And it was there wasn't even any hesitation. He, he didn't think about right. the question and be like, oh, that's interesting. He was just like, she's that talented. She's that talented. Period. That's why she did it. And I totally, and, and I'm not trying to say, and I'm not trying to take away from her talent and saying that it's because she's a woman that it made this film better. Like, she's a fucking great director. She can direct anything. It'll yeah. be a good film. But I think the fact that she is a woman that is winning Best Picture and Best Director shows that, like, she is one of the greatest 25 of our generation, if not ever. Yeah. Right. I think so too. So, who are the other five? Uh, I guess we should talk about the producers a little more. Well, yeah, huh? we'll do it real quickly. I mean, but yeah, just to, to wrap up, Catherine Bigelow. The only other thing we mentioned, we, we missed, is that she has definitely gone through a couple different phases. Um, she was married to James Cameron. She's directed a lot of films, and she seems to be kind of in her prime. I think Detroit's going to do very well. Definitely. I'll be interested to see. Does she stick with this kind of like 
this road she's on or will this be the last collaboration with Mark Bull for a while and will she kind of go into a different style of filmmaking the next phase of her career could be very fascinating um, she could she could do something else she could go she could go ahead and do like what if what if she directed a superhero film right you know it'd be pretty cool yeah so, yeah the producers on this film Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bull are two of them you have Nicholas Chartier and Greg Shapiro um, they're both guys that have basically been consistently working in the 2000s through now neither of them with crazy pedigree yeah um, Nicholas Chartier, his other big, big credit is Dallas Buyers Club. But aside from that, lots and lots of production credits, and most of them are those movies that you you click on the box and you're like, oh, oh it was a straight-to-video yeah. Ethan Hawke, you know, crime movie, or like, you know, once. I feel like that's like the same for Shapiro. I feel like or there, I, there's like there's something with his name that like resonates with me, where I've seen it like at the beginning of a movie many times. It might be Harold and Kumar. Yeah, he's he's a little uh, a little more like varied in the in the genres that he works in. But he produced the original Harold and Kumar, all of the. He stuck with Bigelow and Bull, whereas Nicholas Chartier didn't. Um, he, so he's done all of those ones, the Harold Kumar movies, and then just a bunch of other random stuff here and there. Yeah, they're both like they're both like the kind Serenity. of guys that if we met him at a party and started having a conversation about movies they had worked on, yeah. you and I would both be floored. You'd be like, "Holy shit!" We'd be so excited to meet them. Yeah, but in the kind of rarefied air we talk about producers on this show, they're both just sort of like just guys. Yeah, uh, it, it was Harold and Kumar. That must be it. So, all right, the top five female working directors. We've got a list here, um, and we're not going to put them in any order because I don't think that's going to do anyone any favors. So let's start with Bigelow, and let's just call call it what it is. Catherine Bigelow is number one for me. Yeah. After that, there's a bunch of names here, and I'm going to throw a couple out there. I'm going to throw a couple out there and just sort of see what your opinion is on each of these. Um, it's a popular pick right now, but the first thing I'm going to do is throw out Patty Jenkins' name. And you can tell me if you d- disagree or agree. Everybody knows Wonder Woman is fantastic. She also directed Monster in yep. 2003. Fantastic movie. That's it. She's never directed another movie. Totally. Which is why... <clears throat> Lots I, of TV. Uh, and you and I had a, a little bit of this conversation this morning when, I, when we were on the phone. And I was saying <clears throat> that Patty Jenkins, I definitely think, is going to be one of the best female directors um, of our generation, maybe of all time. But as of right now, like you said, she's done two movies, and one of which is a superhero movie that was perfect. Yep. And the other one was is Monster, which is a very, very good dark drama. But you got to remember that like 10 years ago, people used to talk about Diablo Cody in that sense, saying that she was the greatest director, the greatest female director. She was like... You know, with with Juno and what was the one that came right afterwards that she did? Well, you, you mean she wrote all those movies, though, right? right. I know she didn't direct them, but I'm right. talking about her as uh, as just like being a female front. Like yeah, they were right. saying that she was like the greatest female writer ever. I didn't mean to say director. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, but time tells right. all. Totally. And and as much as I want to say Patty Jenkins is. It's just too short. Her, her 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 track record is too short. I call it, I call it this way because I think the subject matter on the two films are so distinctly different, and mm-hmm. she was very very picky about what she agreed to direct. She was supposed to direct Thor: The Dark World. She turned it down. The movie ended up being terrible. Right. Um, I I commend her, and I think that's why I'm saying it's a question. She's on the edge for me, but I think it's impressive. Next up, I'm going to throw out Sofia Coppola's name. Um, now, Sofia Coppola would have been exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. It would yeah. have been exactly that because of Lost in Translation. I, I, I hear you, Marissa. That's on the list. We're getting there. Um, so, <laughs> Sofia Coppola would have been that person, except that The Beguiled, her current film that just was released this year, uh, she won Best Director at Con for. So, it's, it's a quirky horror film, I think. I haven't watched it yet, but The Beguiled is supposed to be fantastic. Now, Lost in Translation, 
very good film. That's mm-hmm. and I don't think it's overrated either. I've seen it recently and I really like Lost in Translation. And the Virgin Suicides is like a cult classic. People love the Virgin Suicides and then throw in Marie Antoinette, which is one of those movies where the set design's amazing. Mm-hmm. People think it's a little bit underwhelming. And then she had a bit of a downturn, but I do think with the Beguiled, you're going to see Sofia Coppola's name thrown back on that list. Yeah, and 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 for me, I'm going to have to like pump the brakes and wait until it comes out. Yeah, for that. <laughs> um, next up, we're going to go to Nancy Myers. So Nancy, which is Marissa's favorite. Yeah, and I'm going to I'm going to throw in uh, Nancy Myers and Nora Ephron. I'm going to throw them into the same conversation. I love both here. of them very much. Yeah, they're both famous for doing like sort of dramatically driven rom coms. Mm-hmm. Um, now. Nora Ephron most famously originally wrote When Harry Met Sally. Yes. And then she ended up going on to direct You've Got Mail. She's Got Mail. She's Got Mail. Is it where Tom Hanks gets uh, Poison Ivy on his ass? Um, bigger Boat Movies. Eddie, big shout out to you. You always make that joke. I love it. Um, Nora Ephron. So so uh, You've Got Mail and also... She's Got Mail, Ben. Sleepless in Seattle, Sleepless Julia and Julia. Julia and Julia. Those, so those are like the big Nora Ephron ones. Yeah. And those are all like widely regarded as classics. Michael. I do love Michael. <laughs> did she do uh, Lucky You or, or uh, Lucky, uh, Lucky Numbers? Lucky Numbers. And she also did Bewitched. Yes. <clears throat> so uh, Nora Ephron and then Nancy Myers. She's the one that did like It's Complicated, The Intern, The, the yeah. Holiday, The Intern. I think there's one other movie. The Parent Trap. In there. The yep. Parent Trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Something's so, got to give. Something's got to give. That's those are all the movies. So both of them kind of work in that same space. <laughs> what Women Want and Father of the Bride. And Father of the Bride. Yeah. And I think both of them are great for sort of exactly the reasons I'm talking about. After that, you've got some some interesting names we'll throw out here. Okay, so I, I want to, like, deal with this as, as, like, politically appropriately as I can. Yeah. But the Wachowski twins that are both now female, that yeah. started out both as males. Um, I know what you're, yeah, I know what you're getting. Yeah, at. and, like, I, I'm not trying to take away from anything, but they were men when they directed it. And yeah. Like, and, they, and I understand that you're switching, but then, so... I don't know. It just feels like it's like kind of taking away from female directors. From what I understand. But it's, I'm not trying to be narrow-minded. Totally. Well, th- this is what I'll say. Because on the surface, I hear you and agree with you. Um, in the most politically correct, like, we are not educated in that subject matter as much as I think we could be. They identify as women now. And it's the same conversation about Caitlyn Jenner. It's like, despite achievements made before Caitlyn Jenner was Caitlyn Jenner... It is not correct to refer to Caitlyn Jenner as ever having been a man in the same way. And I think for that reason, that's why they're on here. And it's an interesting conversation yeah. to have. Like now this is who they identify yeah, as. Yeah, exactly. They identified as men when The Matrix were released. Mm-hmm. But it's hard not to ignore that. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's obviously a very, very particular and Well, then sort of take everything away. Let's take out gender identification yeah. and everything. Let's just talk about time periods then. They haven't made anything good since the first Matrix. I was going to put them on here as an honorable mention because yeah. I honestly don't think that their filmography is very impressive if you take away the first Matrix. They're just a bunch of weird sci-fi movies. Yeah, like, and, and they're 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 interesting and unique, but it's not like, oh my god. Yeah, have you seen Cloud Atlas or Jupiter Ascending? Yeah, but I was so stoned when I watched <laughs> both of them. I don't remember anything about any of them. <laughs> I was literally just going to say I was so stoned when I was um, so I think I think that's interesting. A couple of the names that I threw on here that jump out to me, Amy Heckerling is one that I think is really interesting. I was just going to Google her because I don't know who that is. Amy Heckerling directed Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Clueless. So I love Clueless. Yeah, Clueless. two of the most it. definitive teen comedies ever. Oh, and look who's talking. Yeah, and... those are the big. Those are the big three. And after that, she really didn't do much else. She did Loser. With, she did European Vacation. She did Loser with Jason. I could never Biggs. be your woman. Loser. So she hasn't done much in the last decade. That's and very Roxbury. notable. She did Night at the Roxbury. 
So Amy she's Heckerling, number one. She's number one. <laughs> but she's like a very interesting name to throw in there. He just thirty seconds ago. I'm gonna Google her. I don't know who she is. <laughs> yeah. She's number one. She's number one. <laughs> Ava DuVernay is another one. She directed Selma. She mm-hmm. just did Thirteenth, the documentary. She's attached to something big that I can't think of right now. Um, I think J- if you put these women together, it'd be like the best produ- like director of all time. Jane, they're Camp- all so different. Yeah. Who, who's Jane Campion? She did the piano. Her her the second half of her career is pretty it's pretty rough. Yeah, and then the last one I wrote down here is Nico Caro, N I K O C A R O, and unless I'm mistaken, uh, yeah, Mimi Later. It's another one. You know what Mimi Later directed? No, The Peacemaker. Yes, <laughs> Clooney, Kidman in and the prime. Too. And pay it forward. Yeah, yeah. So uh, oh. the last one I wrote down was Nico Caro. So she is attached to direct, I believe, the live-action Mulan film. I think Zoo- she's The Zookeeper's Wife. That's what she's The Zookeeper's Wife. Yeah. I think she did, like, McFarlane. like, McFarlane USA. Like, she's one of these directors who has done a bunch of movies that reportedly were pretty good that I didn't see many of. I know North, Count- or North, North Country. North Country. Yeah, that was one that got some Oscar nominations after Charlize won Best Actress for Monster. It was the next movie with Charlize in it. Next big one, because I think it's the next year. Yeah. Um... Or it's 2005. I'm pretty sure 2005. Um, but, so Nico Caro is another name. But if I was going to throw out my big top five here, I think it would probably be Bigelow. It would be, I'm just going to say Patty Jenkins because I have total faith. Uh, I think it's the first four we Nora have F. there Nancy plus Myers. maybe Coppola. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's, I'd say it's like safe to say Coppola. If you wanted to be, if you wanted to be, once again, be respectful of what we think is going to happen, I would say Ava DuVernay is probably the other, like, popular name there. Mm. But, again, as far as relevant big movies that she's done that a lot of people have seen, there haven't been many. Uh, run through that list one more time, then I'm going to hop into box office. Catherine Bigelow, Nora Ephron, Nancy Myers, Patty Jenkins, and we'll say Sofia Coppola with an honorable mention to the Kowski sisters and Ava DuVernay. Cool. Got it. Yeah. Big fans. Big, big fans. I love that this is like a conversation we're having now, too, and, and then it's just going to keep getting better and better. Yeah. Uh, so moving into box office and critical, this is like a, a very, very interesting one to talk about. So this is yeah. produced by Summit Entertainment. It only cost $15 million to make. It was shot on location in Jordan, um, which was, was really cool. Uh, they didn't need any security guards. They talked about how they everyone thought they were going to have to have security guards. Yeah. But Jordan was like so safe and chill. Uh, cost six or fifteen million to make. It opened June twenty sixth of two thousand and nine, and uh, even though it was made in two thousand and seven, correct or released early in two. This thing is so because it, it was in the twenty ten Oscars. It was made in 09 It was released in 08 It says oh seven on oh, IMDb. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you exactly what happened. Three films in history have had the thing happen where they were released at the end of a previous year. Yeah, but in Oscar consideration on wide release the following year. And that's, so this uh, film was released at the end of 2008. It's mm-hmm. officially a 2008 film, but so is Slumdog. Yes. And they won in the subsequent Oscar years. The same can be said for Crash and Million Dollar Baby, both the 2004 films. And lastly, Casablanca was released in 1942, but won the 1943 Oscar. Right. There you go. Movie trivia showdown. We're coming for you. <laughs> uh, it grossed 17 million domestic and an additional 32 worldwide for a grand total of 49 million. Very successful. But what's super interesting. Um, was that it was number 27 its opening weekend. Yeah. Uh, and it only made $145,000, but it was only opened in four theaters. Well, it, cl- it already closed by the time Oscar consideration was even coming up. In fact, we can throw up this graphic up here I pulled. Marissa, if we can blow that up so we can actually see it. We're both blind. Thank you. It's Marissa Serafini oh. up in the booth. What's going oh, on, Marissa? Girl. Hello, gentlemen and Marina. Hello, hello. I really enjoyed the fact that you mentioned Nancy Myers because she's my ultimate favorite. Oh, of course. She's, she's amazing. You know what's funny? Um... Richard Curtis, is that right? Richard or yes, Richard Curtis, the director mm-hmm. who did—he's the guy who did Love Actually, right? Love that movie. Uh, let me guess. 
I always mixed up Love Actually as a Nancy Myers movie. Forever. I've always really? thought that was a Nancy Myers movie. And I just the other day when I was looking it up, I think it's Richard Curtis or I know it's not Nancy Myers. No, it's definitely not. Yeah. It's a it's a man. It's I was I always thought it was yeah. Anyway, here's the list of the lowest grossing domestic best picture winners of all time. Oh yes. Top ten. Yep. Hurt Locker is the number one lowest grossing domestic best picture winner in history. In history. It's it made crazy. no money. Next up is last year's it, winner, Moonlight. Yeah, because when I pulled the numbers, it was like number twenty-seven. I was like, we gotta pull, we gotta pull the twenty, we gotta pull the top thirty, and I gotta see what's ahead of it. But it's crazy. It was only released in four theaters week one and nine theaters in week two. Yeah, which is so. Yeah, we can keep going down this. You've got Moonlight. the last, yeah, Moonlight, Birdman, The Last Emperor, and then The Artist. I thought The Artist would be much higher. Yeah, made no money. Spotlight, The Deer Hunter, Amadeus, Gandhi. Um, it's just it's just crazy for these movies like the ones especially in the last few years with spotlight and this whoever their pr team is whoever it is that's fighting for them to get like oh, yeah. to the academy is is it's amazing i'm very familiar with this list as i've been studying the oscars list yes recently. i know I, I saw that stupid look on your face i was wondering what it was for <laughs> i was trying to think how many i knew the director for i the one the one that i'm gonna die if we ever get asked the question of is the director of the artist it's like Mikkel Ajavendiva Vicious or something. Some name that I like, just no idea. I think that was it. I think that was perfect. Yeah. Um, uh, all right, so moving on to Critical. This movie got a 7.6 on IMDb. It's not in the top 250, which is... Crazy to me. It is a little surprising, right? Yeah, totally. Premium Rushes. Or no, not Premium Rush, just Rushes. Rush. Uh, <laughs> Big shout out to Richard Eric Jarvie, whose favorite film, his, uh, his 42nd favorite film, I brought back my list Yeah. yesterday. I did number 42. Which I, was? Which uh, number 42 for me was Lone Survivor. And mm. Richard called him with his, and Cinderella Man is his 42nd favorite film. I do love that movie. So big shout out, guys. Download Anchor.fm, download the app, find my station, Fist Pump Film Club. I'm going to be continuing to count down my 50 favorite films every single Tuesday. And share yours. I'll share them. Um, All right. So, and then we're talking about uh, Rotten Tomato scores here. All critics gave it a 98, top critics gave it a 98, and the audience gave it an 84. Makes sense in a type of movie like this. Yeah. A war movie, a drama. It's those are things people complain about, whatever. Uh, all right, so moving on to our favorite line. What do you guys got? There's a bunch of really good ones in this movie. There's not anything that's like that like blows your mind. No, I mean the, the David Morse lines are the are the really good ones. Yeah, are super sweet. I I would say um, when we did our fist pump moments, did we just only stick with the David Morse thing? We really only did. Did none of us and have Marina, a different? Marina talked about hers, but we didn't talk about anything other. Oh, interesting. I, I was just remembering because like I have my favorite line, but I also have my fist pump. My fist pump that I didn't get to share uh-huh. is the Ray Fiennes death. Um, I know. Me too. Yeah. That's so funny because it's, it's a soundy mix. <gasps> it's like it's just such an effective use as he <laughs> it's such like an unceremonious death. He's up on the sniper rifle and he takes the shot and it's the way his body flies off the wall. Yeah. And like it's yeah, it's just like one of those things where like I'll bet in war that's exactly actually it would be kind of exactly silent. what happens. You're like I just thought it was like it was one of those things where it was like a unique. It's not something I've seen a lot in movies. Thought that was awesome, but uh, that's so funny because I was actually going to use the David Morse lines for my favorite line and talk about that in fist pump, and I just totally forgot. So my favorite line, I thought well, about this a lot. Uh, yeah. Is it is it the way he falls? Is that your favorite part? Because mine's the sound he makes when he gets shot. For me, it's the way his body <laughs> flies off the wall. It's yeah. like the impact of a large of a large caliber bullet Throws hitting him. him. Yeah. Um, no, I think my favorite line is when they're all drunk and they're talking about their lives back at home, hmm. and Jeremy Renner's talking about his wife, and and he's like blah blah blah. I think where she's still she's still there. So I don't know what it is. And Anthony Mackie's like, just, makes her stupid. And he goes, hey, she's not stupid. Not stupid, man. She's loyal. I just love that line because it's like, it's one of those things where it's, what I hear him, when he says that, what I hear him saying is like, listen, 
I don't know what my life's about. I don't know why I ended up where I am. I don't know why I ended up with a kid that I don't have time for. But it's not her fault. It's my yeah, fault. Exactly. It's she's not stupid. Yeah. But it's like she looks stupid because I put her in such a shitty situation. You yeah, know? it's a good response and it's a good simple line and it, it says a lot about his character. It's very reminiscent of the You crazy I'm not. I'm not crazy. Yeah. In Dark Knight <laughs> yeah, when he yeah, says yeah, that yeah, he like yeah. snaps you're like Jesus. Alright, he's not crazy. Uh Marina, you have a favorite line? Yeah, so well, first the saddest moment, my awe moment, was when um Thompson dies. Yeah. When it was like they're like, he has a phone, he has a phone, he has a phone, he has a phone. And all of a sudden, like, I had a feeling they were going to take out the guy with, that's just, like, right. with the phone. And then you see him hit the button and you're oh, just, like, the very big, yeah. you're just like, oh, shit. <laughs> and I, the blood, like, all over I know, the thing. And, they, yeah, like the and they show the rocks the coming up. Like, that yeah. was just yeah. such a dramatic, great camera work. Like, it's badass. But, the impact of what happens inside that suit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the way the blood. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. yeah. And But favorite line, I just loved Anthony Mackie. I thought he was the perfect amount of, like, funny that this movie needed yeah it's like you making friends again sanborn all day long like just his like comments or like (laughs) this ain't when the guy's like you from california you from california this ain't no effing mean he's just just like holding a gun yeah and then um this is one i it was too long to write down as it was happening so i found it online it's also sanborn he goes you realize every time you suit up it's life or death but you realize every time you suit up every time we go out it's life or death yeah. So I thought that was a good line, too. You know, speaking of that, one other like scene in this film that I think is a little weird, and I, watching it again, I found myself a little bit like, felt like heavy-handed or something. It's the scene at the end where Sam Burns... Oh. No, where Sam Burns in the car with him, and he's talking about wanting a son. It's like a, it's like a good uh, yeah. scene, and I understand why it's there, Poor and it's supposed son, to be... Man. It's supposed yeah. to be sort of almost like a weak moment of vulnerability from Sanborn. Like, he's supposed to be kind of, like, showing his, like, he's scared and he's, like, sick of it and he wants to go home. Yeah. But I don't know if it's Mackie's performance or the way it's framed. There's just something about that scene where I was just like, this just feels, like, a little heavy-handed for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I didn't dislike it, but I, I agree. It didn't feel it didn't feel proper. Um, So, for my, like, awe moment, I love... There's a couple moments. Evangeline Lily's biceps and the wasp <laughs> shot that went online. Yeah, Did you guys yeah. all see that? No, Holy she's sh- shredded. Jacked. Cable looks insane, oh too. I can't wait. Um, I love when Sanborn, or when Eldridge is like, he was, he was right here. He's right here. Yeah, he's yeah, like yeah, yelling yeah, yeah, for yeah. his name. He's like, he's gone, man. He's gone. He's yeah, like, yeah. No, he's right here. He's like holding his helmet. It was just like, yeah, Jesus. Totally. That is gnarly. Um, my favorite line... I think I have a couple. So the, the the beginning or my first one that I have is when Anthony Mackie walks in for the first time after Renner and them have worked together. <clears throat> He's like, "Hey man, I want to talk to you about yesterday. It wasn't cool." And Renner's like, "Yeah, I know. You'll get it though." And he just lights a cigarette and goes. Yeah. And lay, you're just like, "What? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's yeah. not the point." But it's just the way he says it is just like, I mean, "What's Mackie gonna say to him?" I know that's you another. Know? It's another line that I really like too. Is later when he's like, he's like, no, we're not doing this. He's like, hey, Sandborn, listen, you don't say no to me. Yeah, I say no to you. Exactly. And it's one of the few times that he asserts himself, and you're just like, this guy's a fucking prick. He's a he's a prick, yeah. and he's a badass. Uh, and then the other ones that I really love, it's at the very end. It's after Will gets shot, and he's like, you know, Will, 
He's like, fuck you, man. Really, fuck you. Thanks for saving my life. But we need to go out looking for trouble just so you can get your fucking adrenaline rush, yeah. man. And then Sanborn comes up. He's like, hey, man, go ahead. Get home. Take care of yourself, brother. <laughs> I just love it's like he's so mean to fucking Redder. And then yeah. it just as soon as Sanborn walks up, he's like, hey, buddy, get home. It's like smiling. <laughs> it just cracks me up every time. I love it. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, guys, we only have a couple things left on the show today. Um, I believe we did answer one of the AMA questions from Richard. Did we have another one we wanted to share, or we pretty much covered it earlier? You think? Uh, no, the only other AMA question wasn't really a question. It was discussing the over-under proper. So okay, that was great. covered so in we our, answered yeah. both. And then, yeah, I, I did want to make reference to this because it's one of the few times, and I don't want to do the impression because that's not the point, but uh, we used to do a segment on the show a lot called Cage versus Cruise, <laughs> and the discussion was who would have been better in the lead role, you know, Nick Cage or Tom Cruise. Two years later, it's you don't say no to me. A very, very, very <laughs> underwhelming conversation in general because Cage is just like you can't even take him seriously in that conversation. Anymore. You don't say no to me. I say no to you. <laughs> but I did think about it a little bit that this role, if it had been directed by someone else and it had been made at the same time, that Cruz could have played the Renner role, and if he had done it the way that Cruz is capable of playing, like a darker character, yeah, he would have been phenomenal in this role. You know what? I really like that, and I'm going to piggyback on that with almost like an old-school recast. Yeah. I think that Jason Bateman, if he got in a little bit better shape, yeah. would crush this role. Interesting. Because Jason Bateman... I love Jason Bateman. For some reason, great. over the last like handful of years, yeah. Jason Bateman has asserted himself as one of the best pricks on camera. Yeah, he's good. He's so good at it. So imagine him in like military fatigues, with his like kind of condescending, he could have been the perfect asshole. He could be the perfect asshole. He's like, yeah. "You don't say no to me. I say no to you, buddy." Yeah, like things like that. Right. It would be really sweet. But I love Cruz in that. I just was thinking like like Mission Impossible Three era Cruz, mm-hmm. where it's like he's in that he's that hardened. age, he's that shape. You like, and he's playing it. I'm trying to think if there's like a Cruz role where he has like a little bit more of that tonality. I guess it. I guess it would be like the Valkyrie era. Mm. Um, yeah, but yeah. it's like almost his approach to to acting was. You want more like that late '90s approach, like he was doing in Magnolia. That's like more of the cruise you'd want. Mm-hmm. But I think I just think that if they had, it wouldn't have been the same movie. It wouldn't have won Best Picture. People wouldn't have treated it the same. No, way. no, definitely. And, that, and I made that point on our last Samurai episode. I think that the, yeah. the only reason Tom Cruise hasn't won an Oscar is because he's Tom Cruise. Yeah. Um, oh, I wanted to talk about this because I, I was I was trying to think of it during our um, emotional explosion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the. The, what did you guys think about that guy at the very end who's got the hardened case steel vest on and Renner's like, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't. Like, I can't get it off. Oh, why, like, why to do that? <clears throat> no, I just, what did you guys think about that scene? Because I actually love that scene. It feels yeah. super Hollywood, but I love it. And I just like, what do you guys think about that? Because it's like a really sad scene. He's like, it I have is. kids and, you know, he's a good man. He just... I think it's a great scene. I think for a lot of reasons because they... I think she, she's trying to build the, the suspense and, you know, build up that tension more and more and more and more for you to feel like he's either going to die here mm-hmm. and that's the end of the movie or he's going to somehow save the day. And But, like, ultimately what ends up happening is, like, they're trying to show his humanity a little bit. Yeah, because it's the only time he gets hurt. And he's trying he, – it's like he's trying to save someone, but he fails at it. Yeah. And even though he fails at it, he doesn't die. He just keeps going back in. And like that, I just—it's a cool scene. I think, I think it's really good. I think that the closing of this movie is brilliant. Yeah, where it's just like Days and Bravo Company one. Yeah, which is all over again. Yep. Yeah. Uh, 
Is that what else we got? It's pretty much that. There's only you know there's only a couple things left to talk about. One of them is the three action movie <laughs> categories. Um, you know the three categories are totally ridiculous, totally legitimate, and ridiculously legitimate. Totally legit. Yeah, it's not. I mean, again, we don't. I feel really like have you could maybe it. argue for the middle category because he does seem kind of like a superhero. But for me, it's totally legit. Yeah, totally I think legit. it's totally legit. I think that's yeah. an easy one. And then uh, last but not least, we have the pish, which uh, I think this is going to be one of our classic. Uh, put up a poll and have you guys vote on it weeks. Yeah, it's been a while, guys. We were really excited to come back and do a movie that you didn't have to go pay to watch this week. Yeah, and we it was did a also lot this a, summer. Uh, a classic that Ben and I are such huge fans of. So I think we're going to try to do maybe something like that again next week. Yeah, I think we're going to I think we're going to put up a poll with some of our favorites, movies that we've wanted to talk about on the show and we haven't gotten to talk about, and uh, that's going to be the thing. So so that's a good reminder for you guys. If you're not there. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at AMA Podcast. I think we might even put the poll up on Facebook. Oh my god! As well, because now there's Getting enough crazy. people yeah. on Facebook that we actually could get good results at both oh, places. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe we'll average the you know average the results together and see if people want to do that. So go ahead and join the Facebook fan page. Follow on Twitter at AMA Podcast. You can follow me personally at Ben Bateman Media. Uh, you can find me at Andrew Guy on Instagram and Twitter. And Marina, where can the folks find you? At Marina underscore Verano on Instagram and Twitter. And yes, go on the Facebook fan page, do the poll. We want to hear what you want to see and we want to make it happen for you. So yeah, go join. Right. Cool, guys. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Have a good one. Bye. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.